Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow, together with other mothers, when autumn comes. So the crazy thing about being a podcasting special needs mom, podcasting special needs medical mom at that, is that, you know, this stuff, do you guys hear that? Do you hear what's going on? I am in the ICU right now with Lorelai. And I'm sitting here editing Brittany's episode. Watching people out our window. Facing their worst days ever. As I sit next to my daughter. Who is facing a really, really bad day. And there's been a few episodes where I've warned you. Don't listen to this episode on the way to work. This one, you need to be at the right mindset. It is a powerful, amazing, beautiful story. And I'm so thankful that Brittany was here to share it with us. But I also know that a lot of our listeners wear mascara. And unless it's waterproof, you're probably not going to want to listen right now. So, Brittany... Thank you so much for being here and for sharing Liam with us. Hi, Brittany, and welcome to the podcast. I People don't see that we just spent 45 minutes trying to get our, our um, technology working. So we are excited to finally be able to have this conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us, tell us why you're here? So... I'm here because you asked me. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm here because I am the mother of the most perfect special needs little boy, Liam. And I want to share him with you guys. You can't wait to hear about him. What did he love? What was he like? He smiled with his entire face. Everyone who ever saw him just constantly talked about this boy's smile. He loved Tarzan. I mean, we watched Tarzan... I'm ashamed to admit it, probably eight times a day for four years straight. <laughs> um, and he loved his star projector. He And he just loved to be with us. That was our thing. Spend time together, singing, watching TV, laughing, tickles, kisses. His smile was just the best smile ever. And ear to ear, have, you can see down his throat. You're going to give us some pictures that we can share of you guys together so everybody can enjoy his smile. What disease affected your family? 
So he was born with cystic fibrosis, which is a recessive genetic disorder. And I know you guys have touched on that. So I'll pass that one. But a secondary disease that greatly affected us was cerebral palsy, um, which occurred from from lack of oxygen due to his disease. So he he had some pretty significant brain damage from that. So can Do I ask most a question? Patients? No, actually, Liam was the most complicated case of cystic fibrosis that his pulmonology team had ever seen. The reason he had cerebral palsy was because of an airway malformation that he also was born with. Typically, CFers, or that's what we call people with cystic fibrosis, um, typically CFers go on to live a seemingly normal life outside of their medications and treatments and things like that. Liam, of course, was the exception. Of course. You guys know that. (laughs) Yes, of course. And you also have a little girl. I do. I have a almost 17-month-old, perfectly healthy, typical little girl named Cleo. You and I connected in the NICU when Liam and Lorelai were in together. But we also kind of reconnected again when we were both pregnant, not knowing if our second children had our genetic diseases that we lovingly passed on to our offspring. That's, 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 that's a good way to put that. Yes. Lovingly. Um, yeah, it, it, I remember reaching out to you. I think you may have announced that you were pregnant before I did. Um, and I remember reaching out to you because you're the only other person that I know of that's on these pins and needles, just waiting to see what, what the prognosis is of, of our next children, of our next child. Um, so yeah, I'm super thankful that we were able to reconnect through that. Definitely. It got me through a lot. (laughs) Share the complications of having two CF kids. So cystic fibrosis is only dangerous to somebody else with cystic fibrosis. You will, you and I will never catch anything from anyone with this disease. However, there's these bacteria that breed in everybody's bodies that are only harmful to people with cystic fibrosis. So if you have one child like Liam, who was very advanced in his cystic fibrosis, I had another child with cystic fibrosis, they would immediately catch this bacteria that Liam had and would immediately face extreme hardships that other people with cystic fibrosis wouldn't, wouldn't face. So it's, it's pretty life shattering when you have more than one CFR. It's amazing because you hear of, or I mean, I'm aware of a handful of people that have it and you've heard of the disease, but you don't really know about the disease. Like I don't, you know, I have um, an acquaintance that, you know, has to do wear the vest and make Mm -hmm. sure that he takes his medications. And then I have a girlfriend with a little boy and he has never, I don't know if symptomatic is the right word. He's a carrier of it. Um, And they just kind of wait to see if anything will come to fruition. But um, I never have heard of that. And that is, astounding. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Terrifying. Um, Ironically enough, I had a really great friend in high school who passed away from cystic fibrosis. So I'm not unfamiliar with this disease at all. And so when I did finally get the the diagnosis for Liam that he had cystic fibrosis, it just kind of brought me to my knees and shook me to my core because I saw what advanced cystic fibrosis looks like. However, I never imagined it would be for my two, three, four, five-year-olds. She was 17 when she died and she didn't start getting super sick until she was 15. 
So I thought in my mom mind, when I got that diagnosis that I at least had a good 15 years, you know, and nowadays they've made so many amazing strides with cystic fibrosis that people are living well into their 50s, which is crazy. So yeah, it, it definitely wasn't the life that I had imagined, even after diagnosis, you know, there's one thing you make and up your mind when you get a diagnosis as to what to expect. But then mine was nothing like what I expected from what I knew. So that was kind of earth shattering to wrap my mind around. Am I wrong in my assumption that I have heard that cystic fibrosis affects boys more than it does girls? You're wrong. Yeah. Okay. So it's equal. It is equal. It's equal opportunity disease. And what makes the severity different? Is it his other underlying conditions that he had on top of his cystic fibrosis? Or is it just kind of how they're born, how the disease manifests? So I will say that there's a component of both of those things. There are different types of mutations, just like with Mito. My son, he had the most common type of mutation, which is the double delta F508. And that's typically a little bit more of a severe mutation. There's different classes, classes one, two, and three. He was in a class two. But his other underlying disease and and, um, diagnoses are what made him be so severe. And can I just take a minute to say that you went from, I'm going to have my child for 15 or 20 years. And like you had to accept that. Right. Because that's a tough pill to swallow. Never mind him passing at five years old, right? Yes, five. And to get to a point of going, I mean, a second ago, just the way you said it, like, yeah, you know, I I planned for 15. Like, where in our mom lives did we ever think we would plan for 15 and make in that sound like it rolls off the tip of your tongue something within you becoming a mom automatically is i'm making lemonade no matter what it's not even something that we think about right you become a mom you're given the worst possible news and you're like okay well where's my sugar to make this lemonade let's make this palatable and that's immediately what my brain did okay well you know shelby died at 17 so at least i get that at least, at least. Something with special needs moms, we can say at least, but please don't say at least to me. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't even like to say at least because then it perpetuates people at least thing. But that's what that's how I survive. What did you feel when you heard the diagnosis? Was it a whirlwind of he was born, he was he was having complications? Were you completely blindsided? What were you feeling? So we had some suspicions that there was something going on in utero. We ruled out everything but cystic fibrosis. When I got my blood work back showing that I was a carrier, something in me just knew it. I guess that was whatever higher power people believe in. I'm not too religious per se, but whatever there is that's out there was letting me know your child has CF. And I took that for what it was. Now, when he was born and there were all of these complications, they weren't listening to me. They fought me on getting this diagnosis. Now, granted, they have to do the newborn screening, but they wanted to wait to do the newborn screening because he was critical and they didn't want to agitate him. And I said, without a diagnosis for cystic fibrosis, we can't start treating him. We can't do anything. We're between a rock and a hard place right now of what is going on. And I'm telling you with everything in me, my child has cystic fibrosis. So when I finally got the diagnosis, I was relieved. 
And I immediately remember crying that I was relieved. I was like, why am I relieved that I just got a diagnosis that's terminal for my child, but I finally felt heard. It was finally like, I told you there's something wrong and nobody wanted to listen to me. I think we should have named this podcast like the mom gut knows or something like that. I mean, when autumn comes is a really cute name, but every single episode just keeps going back to how the mom gut just knows. It's the lemonade. It's the lemonade. We talked about how you felt when you got the diagnosis. How did you feel when you knew the end was near? I was in complete denial. I'm going to cry. So sorry. About two weeks before my daughter was born, he crashed really badly. He was in the PICU and his pulmonologist, Dr. Epstein, she's a wonderful woman. She talked to me and she said, you know what, Brittany? we might need to start preparing ourselves that this might, this might be it for him. And I said, I know I initially was told with his brain damage that they suspected he would live for between two and eight years. Six years is a huge gap, you know? So I immediately, when he turned two, I was like looking for signs, you know, now he's three. What are we doing now? He's four, you know, Two to four were very good years for us. Two to four, he he did things nobody thought he would do. He came home on a ventilator, actually. And he was completely off his ventilator except for sleeping for well over a year. And then four, man, it just, everything just kind of took a corner. He couldn't really get off of antibiotics for longer than eight weeks or so. He was in the hospital at least every eight weeks for two to three weeks from the time my daughter was born until we decided to keep him home and and keep him with us. He was in the hospital when you had Cleo, right? He was. They didn't even meet until he was three weeks old. He finally came home. She was three weeks old. Yep. He hated her. (laughs) He hated her. (laughs) She was loud. Um, and he just, he was nonverbal. Um, and, but he just had a way of letting, you know, he would just look and he would point and his eyes would just let, you know, I am done. I would say about a month. It took about a whole month. Like Liam did not like change and he let, you know, so it took about a whole month for him to warm up to her, but then they became buddies and it was pretty sweet. If she would be in the room and he sees her, he would put his arms out for her to go lay with him or her to sit in the chair with him. So then when she started to crawl and could go into his room, she would go into his room. And then eventually, you know, she would pull up at his bed and peek over at him and they would both just laugh and smile at each other. So they really did develop a beautiful, beautiful relationship for the year that they were together. Did you work during any of this time? I I did. So when he was born, I stopped working. He actually came home from the hospital two weeks before his first birthday. So we had a very, very long hospital stay. And I didn't work during that time. And then when he came home, let's talk about home health. That took an extremely long time to find home health nursing. Um, Actually, that's not true. It took me seven months to find a nurse that I felt that I could trust to even keep in my home with me there. 
And after about a year of her being there and them developing an amazing relationship and me absolutely falling in love with her as far as making her part of our family, I went back to work just on a part-time basis. I did stop working though when I was pregnant with my daughter because Liam's health declined and I, one was pregnant, two was having a new baby, three, Liam's health was declining and I just needed to be home. And you had said that he was in the hospital for a year after he was born? He was in the hospital 11 and a half months before his first birthday. He did not come home from the hospital until he was almost one years old. In that time, you still had that feeling of hope that, oh my gosh, I'll have him for maybe 17 years. Did people tell you otherwise? Did you... When he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, which was Christmas Eve, actually, of 2015, that's when I knew that I wouldn't have him that long. Because people with brain damage can go on to live for a very long time. But people with brain damage and compromised organs don't go on to live for a very long time. Cystic fibrosis doesn't just affect lungs like people think. It, it affects your entire body, your lungs, your pancreas, your liver. It, it's very like all-encompassing. And so I, I knew then that I, I wouldn't have him as long as I thought I would have him. I remember sitting in one of the mom groups. I think that's where you and I really connected one of the first times. Our NICU had groups for moms to get together for those of us who hung out at the NICU all day long and just kind of share our stories and connect with people, which is like what we're doing now. But I remember sitting there because I had just gotten the diagnosis of two to five years for Lorelai. And I remember you telling me that. Lorelai was born. Yeah. Lorelai was born in February. So it was two months after you had gotten all of your buckets of news. And I just remember sitting there thinking like, how are we all here? How are we doing this? How are we sitting in this room trying to process the future of our little bitty babies that are all hooked up to tubes and wires and everything else? And I'm thankful for our group because we all kind of graduated together in a way, Mm. but it's just weird. It's like you go into sheer survival mode. Nothing makes sense until you're out of it. And then you are, you're sitting there wondering, how did I even get through that? How did I do that? And it's at the same time, you don't forget anything. You remember it all, but it's all a blur at the same time. If that makes any sense. You recently posted something on social media that said, I thought the NICU was hard, but I would take it back in a second. Yes, because that meant he would be alive. That meant I would see him every day. And excuse me, but hard is perspective. You know, everyone's perspective of hard is their own. I used to be resentful for what I call typical mom friends because they would be devastated that their child had an ear infection. And for me, I was like, what I wouldn't give to say my child has an ear infection. But then I realized. That's the worst thing they've ever gone through. It's the worst thing they've ever felt. So why in the world do I think that I'm superior? Or why in the world do I think that I have it harder? They don't know that harder exists. They only know how they feel. And when I 
told myself that. And when I grasped that concept, it was, it was liberating in a sense because I harbored a lot of resentment a lot. And how freeing, like, not that it's easy, but I know that I've tried to carry that same, everyone's heart is hard. And that's kind of my takeaway. And I loved how you put it because it was much more eloquent and (laughs) makes much more sense, but you're right. And when you can understand that, letting that resentment go just takes another layer of heavy baggage off your back. So you can really focus on your child. Speaking of perspective, where are you now? You're, you lost your son three months ago. Is that right? Has it been three months? Four, I think. October, yeah, four. Where am I where? now? I don't know the stages of grief, if I'm being honest. I don't know them. I think that I'm... I've accepted it. There's... I always knew he was going to die. And I had something leading up to his death showing me that he's, 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 he's dying. Not only that, he was in hospice care and it was a gradual, a gradual decline that happened quickly, which I know sounds kind of like an oxymoron gradual and quickly, but over the course of a year, he went from stable to very unstable and it all just kind of happened step by step, by step, by step. He couldn't get off medication. He was sleeping more than usual. He, he was coughing nonstop. He needed way more medication than we had ever been giving him. And it finally got to the point that my palliative care doctor sat me down and said, Brittany, we need to think about what we're doing to Liam versus what we're doing for Liam. And it, it shook my world. I said, what do you mean? And in the CF world, in the pulmonology world, you fight this disease with every single thing you have. You fight it. Most people that die from this disease die waiting on organs. Liam doesn't qualify for an organ transplant because he had brain damage. And I knew that, but I fought so long to give him this quality of life that the idea of stopping that that fight, it, it never even crossed my mind. You, you don't do that, you know, but I had to, I had to accept the fact that he was suffering and I was forcing him to suffer and coming to terms with that was way harder than coming to terms with him dying. And so I truly feel like I went through the harder of it before he died. After he died, the day he died, I saw him laying there peacefully in my arms and I had never seen my baby like that. He was at peace for the first time in his life. And it just brought me to my knees. And I said, he's, he's free finally. So everything leading up to his death was, was much harder than accepting the fact that he's gone and pain free. He just blessed us immensely. He taught us true happiness. You walked into the room and that's like, it's the only thing that mattered. You were in this room 
and he was abundantly happy. He was loved and he was cherished and he was happy. So letting him go to let him out of that body that just trapped that beautiful soul in it gives me peace. I'm glad that you were able to find the peace with it because carrying the weight of the idea that you were doing this to him, I can't even imagine. And I, I know that I think that some days too, like as I'm giving my kid morphine, like, am I doing more? Am I, you know, or am I doing more? Am I not doing enough? Like where there's a weird turmoil inside of you at all times, but then to have it get to that point where you have to put your pain aside because your little boy's pain is so bad. Right. It takes a strong, strong woman, a strong, strong mom to be able to do that. And that's, that's the thing about mothers. We take on the pain so that our children don't have to. And for me, this was the ultimate pain. Telling my son, go. You don't have to be in pain anymore. Mommy will do it. That's, that's all we can do as a mom, you know? Give them all that we have and be the best for them that we can be. And he gave me his best. And he gave me his all. So it was time that I did the same for him. There was another interview we had with a mom recently, Janice, who lost her daughter actually a month prior to Liam passing. And she said something in her interview that, that Juliet owed me nothing. And it always stuck with me. And it's still like the other night when I'm yelling at Lorelai to go the F to sleep, <laughs> I sit back and I think like, She's fighting every day and she owes me nothing. And, and Liam, like to be at peace and free and to get past his poor, sweet little body fighting, like he owed this world nothing. And he fought right. so damn hard. And for me, I know you said something that you, you worry sometimes about what are you doing to your children? I noticed that Liam was having more bad days than good days. And as a special needs mom, when that time comes, you'll know, and you won't even be questioning it. So the fact that you're questioning it, in my opinion, means that you're doing what you need to be doing for your child. I need to hear that like on a daily, but thank you. You're welcome. I'll try and, <laughs> I'll try and articulate this. You know, I feel like when people that are not in this special needs journey look at us. I mean, I, I'm sitting here crying at your story because there's so many feelings that come about it. But I will say that just everybody who's listening that doesn't sit in this space, like I can't say that every day is, there doesn't come pain in every day that I don't wish for any of us that this wasn't our story. But like, how lucky are we? You know, how lucky are you that you have this depth to your soul now because of the pain that you've endured watching this beautiful soul of yours. And I'm not saying every day we're lucky by any means. And I know there are people listening that may not be in that spot, but I have to say that there are a lot of days that 
you know, when I do have a better day or my, my daughter has a better day, that it's this beauty that like, we're so lucky to be able to experience some of these things. I think we as special need mothers truly get to experience the purest, most precious form of love that there is. Oftentimes people pity you or people feel bad for you or people can't imagine what you're going through. Well, I'm sorry that you can't imagine the most perfect form of love that exists. The most beautiful, pure, sunshiny, bright love that has been placed on this earth. That's what we as special need mothers get for the handoff of the pain that we endure. The most special love that exists. Absolutely. And it really is painful, but you definitely want to trade it for anything. Nope. I often would think about what I wouldn't give to to have a normal child, to have a typical, have a healthy child. And when you're in the throes of it until you reach enlightenment is what I like to call it. <laughs> until you reach enlightenment, which is acceptance of where you are in your life. That's kind of what it was for me was what I wouldn't give to be able to see my kid walk or what I wouldn't give to be able to have him talk to me. And now that I have a typical child that's walking and that's talking, it just made everything that I went through with my son all the more precious and all the more special. Because while yes, my daughter is perfect and she's amazing and she's healthy, it's different. It's different. And I know you have two typical children, so you can attest that it's a little different as well. But I'm thankful for the trenches that I went in, the trenches that I'm still in, the throes of grief and going back into the world now with people not knowing that I lived this hard, hard life. They see me now with this perfectly healthy, beautiful little girl. And they think, oh, okay, here's just, you know, your standard mom with a healthy daughter. Or all the time I get asked, you know, is she, is she your only child? How do you answer that? Absolutely not. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you answer it? What is your answer? She has an older brother. That's my answer. I am not quite at a place yet that I can say anything other than that without um, breaking down. And I'm not really too keen on, on breaking down at Walmart and things like that right now. <laughs> if you did break down to somebody, what's an acceptable reaction? I, I have a good example for that. We were at the pumpkin patch after Liam died. And there was this really young couple with a teeny, 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 tiny baby. And something in me just said, stop and talk to them. Stop and talk to them. And their baby's name was Liam. Their baby was born the day my Liam died. Their Liam's middle name was Ray, which is my daughter's middle name. And I broke down to these strangers and they said to me, this is just your Liam showing you that he's here with you.
I think when people acknowledge your child who has passed when you're talking to them or if you're breaking down, when they speak his name, when they recognize you as a mother, that's acceptable when there's somebody crying to you about a question you ask them. It makes it personal. It makes them feel validated and a little less crazy for crying to a random stranger who asked an innocent question. So how do, how did you get out of bed every day? Like that has been I, a question that I've always wanted to ask is if something were to happen, like can our listeners say like you will be able to get out of bed? You will. There's always something else in your life that has a purpose to it. Whether you you find joy in artwork, whether you find joy in music, whether just being outside in fresh air brings you joy, there is something that will always pull you out of bed. I will say in my case, I had a 13 month old and she's my angel. She gets me through this. She very much remembers her brother, which blows my mind. She'll go to his pictures and she'll kiss his pictures and she'll just be like, Baba, Baba. She'll bring them to me. That keeps me going. That gets me up out of bed, knowing that there's something bigger than me right now, which is my daughter, that keeps me going. I have talked with someone who's lost a child and it was their first child. And she did tell me that it was harder to find a purpose to pull her out of pull her out of her grief. But she leaned on her family. She leaned on her spouse. She leaned on her parents. And she told herself that she owed it to herself and she deserved to be able to have a life worth living, even through the pain. And do you have a significant other? Yes, I'm married. How has the grief process, have you done that together? Have you done that separate? So if I'm just going to be transparent and honest, we don't really work through it. He and I are grieved very differently. I am grieving by keeping Liam's memory alive. I grieve and want to talk about him. I grieve and want to look at old photographs. My husband grieves and wants to lock it in a safe. He only wants to open that up when he's ready to open that up. He doesn't want the constant reminders of of Liam around him, which I'm not going to say I understand, but I respect it. Because the last thing I would ever want is for him to tell me, you shouldn't be looking at Liam's pictures every day. Or you shouldn't be talking about him so much. I would never tell him, I think you should talk more about Liam. I think you should expose yourself to these photos and keep his memory alive. Because who are we to tell each other how we should feel this unimaginable pain? We just kind of respect each other, but respect each other while we dance around how we're grieving. I normally have a clock on my screen that I don't have right now. So I don't know how long we've been recording. I do want to touch on one other thing before we ask you the last question. How do you feel when people look at you now and think you have a typical kid, you're a typical mom? How do you, how does that make you feel? Heavy. 
because I know that I'm not a typical mom. I know that I, I carry something so deep in me that nobody could possibly understand. So I feel very heavy knowing that there's these layers to me that, that people don't see. Is it lonely? It's lonely, yes. It's it's hard to measure what you say all the time because you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. I recently went back to work and a lot of them at work did not know my son died. So when people ask me how my son is doing and I have to say he passed, it hurts me to have to say it because I worry about how they're going to feel about asking me about my child. And that's part of that heaviness that there's so much to it that people don't see. They just see me out with my daughter. They see pictures of, of Cleo or they knew Liam's smile. They, they knew he was happy. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to manage and it's a hard thing to really kind of express. You also don't want people to not talk about him either. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just a hard balance because, I mean, when I told you you could be on this podcast, you're like, you're going to give me a microphone to talk about my kid? Like, yes, please. Right. And it's just a, such a hard struggle of you want to talk about him because he's still a huge part of your life. He, he made me become an adult. He made me learn to become a person that I didn't know existed. And I owe him a lot. He, he fought how he fought and he was who he was, but he changed me to become the person that I am. And I'm going to forever be thankful for that. He taught me how to, to stand up for myself. He taught me how to fight for him. And with that, I learned this whole new level of respect and this whole new level, this whole demand of presence and 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 things to that nature that I, I never knew existed. I'm forever changed just by having him. And being his mom was truly the greatest privilege. So Brittany, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? The future of my daughter, my family, we're well on our way to a cure for cystic fibrosis. There's been leaps and bounds in miracle drugs just in the five years that Liam lived. Brighter days, springtime coming, and love. That's what gives me hope. Well, you are an incredible mom. You are loved. You are loving and we are thankful that you're a part of our community and your story is going to touch so many thank you for having me you have an incredible boy looking down on you thank you for sharing thank you I cannot begin to tell you how powerful Brittany's words were today for me I did most of this editing prior to this week, but I had to finish the editing here in the ICU. And, you know, God's timing is crazy, and I needed to hear her words again. 
are words of hope and love and strength. And, you know, I met Brittany five years ago when both of us became medical special needs moms in our, in our lovely NICU um, that is one floor above where I'm sitting right now. And I can say that the Brittany I met then versus the Brittany that you just heard, she has become a strong and powerful, articulate mom that I am very proud to call a friend. Normally, Diana's here having a conversation with me, and we wrap up an episode together. But again, life is a little crazy right now. So it's just me. And I'm going to say, so is this is Susan, and I am waiting for the doctors to round outside our door, and I will be joining rounds here in a couple minutes. Diane is probably, let me guess, I'm going to say it's a Tuesday, Wednesday, so she is probably about to go do somebody's hair. I hope she gives them a wicked good cut. You guys have a good week, and we will catch you at 4 a.m. on Friday.